Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta. This season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB's services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Atul Rustigi is a partner at Accolade. Prior to joining Accolade in 2007, Atul worked at McKinsey & Company, a leading strategy consulting firm. Before McKinsey, Atul worked at the Robin Hood Foundation, a venture philanthropy that funds and supports innovative poverty-fighting organizations in New York City. Accolade has been an early investor and backer in top-tier venture capital firms like Andreessen Horowitz, Excel, IA Ventures, Mucker Capital, Kleiner Perkins, and many others. I'm really excited to have Atul on Origins today. I'm so excited to do this with you. We've been um, collaborators and friends for a while now, so I, I don't really know why we haven't done this before, but thank you for doing this episode of Origins with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. So quick, quick background on yourself. Uh, so I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia before moving to Ann Arbor, Michigan for middle school and high school. Uh, after that, I had the honor of attending the University of Michigan, Go Blue, where I graduated from the undergraduate business school. Um, after graduation, I joined McKinsey, which is a strategic consulting firm for three years, and worked in their Cleveland, Atlanta, and India, New York offices. I was a generalist while I was there. Uh, after McKinsey, I joined the Robin Hood Foundation, a nonprofit in New York City, right before 9-11, and worked there yeah. for two years helping build libraries and elementary schools, providing low-income families a way to apply for their earned income tax credit. Uh, it was actually an amazing experience. Uh, I was there for two years. Uh, after that, I attended Harvard for MBA school. Uh, and after HBS, rejoined McKinsey in their Washington, D.C. office for a couple years. And then I was fortunate to join Accolade Partners in 2007. You know, joining Accolade right before the financial crisis was very formative for me, you know, both from a fundraising and investing perspective, uh, you know, you learn the patience or importance of patience and persistence uh, when raising capital in the midst of a crisis. And I also learned 
the benefits of steadily deploying capital during a downturn. It ended up being one of our best uh, performing fund of funds. It was the time that built a lot of character for me. Uh, and I think this period would do some of the same. Interesting. So how did you stumble upon Accolade? I mean, it so- sounds like your work up until that time was not really related to fund investing. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, my whole career had really nothing to do with what I'm doing today. Right. You know, while I was at uh, business school, I did have an internship in sales and trading at Lehman Brothers, but that has also very little relevance to what I'm doing today. Right. Um, I was just fortuitous. I mean, when I rejoined McKinsey post MBA school, uh, one of my teammates on my first project joined uh, another venture capital fund of funds. And that pretty much opened my eyes to the space. I had very little concept of an endowment or foundation. I had no idea where VCs got their capital from. I didn't even know fund of funds existed uh, until he joined uh, a similar fund of funds. Uh, so for the next couple of years, I got up to speed on the industry uh, and was really drawn to it uh, the more I got to know about it. And so my current partner, Joel Caden, uh, the founder of Accolade, knew my former McKinsey colleague at his fund of funds. And so when she was looking to bring a senior professional on board, she reached out to him uh, and he introduced me to her. So I'm very grateful for that introduction. You know, 13 years later, I love Accolade and the work we do more than ever before. So it was just very fortunate and lucky. That's awesome. So I imagine the team at that point was probably pretty small in 2007. It was just Joel, myself, and two analysts, so very small. Okay, wow. What did you do in the early days? How did you learn? How did you get up to speed? And I'm curious, like, what your what your maybe role was then and obviously how it's evolved um, in that time now that now that you're obviously a partner at the firm. So one thing that drew me to Accolade, and it's uh, still something that I love today, is you can touch every aspect of the business because we were a small firm. I, I equate it to almost like a startup. I mean, I was involved in evaluating managers. I was involved in raising capital uh, and anything to do with the operations of the firm I was involved with. And that still persists today where uh, you get to touch all aspects. To me, that was one of the biggest draws to, to the firm. And so, yeah, what did, I, what did I do then? I mean, when I joined, I knew nothing about the industry. So right. um, I, I took my time to get to know the different managers in our portfolio in the industry. And it really took a few years. I mean, you like any other apprenticeship business or um, even what you do, it takes time to get that pattern recognition. And it not only took a few years to develop that, I've, I've learned a lot even in the past 5, 10, 13 years that I've been at the firm, you're always learning. And so um, it, it's, it's not one of those industries where you become an expert very quickly. It does take time and patience. So that's what I spent a lot of my time. When I joined the firm, uh, we were raising our, we were embarking to raise our third fund of funds. Uh, and then the credit crisis happened about a year after I joined. Uh, and so then I got a real good taste of what fundraising was like yeah. uh, in a crisis. So I, I learned that skill quite painfully. Uh, but, it, you know, put a lot of effort and time into it, and it's paid off over time. Yeah, in the beginning years, it was mainly just trying to get to know what this industry was about, get to know our portfolio, and then develop that skill of fundraising, which I think is value, invaluable. So I want to talk a little, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that in a second. I, I'm, I'm just curious, like in 2007, you joined Accolade. I imagine venture in general was much smaller. Like maybe not obviously as small as the... 70s or 80s when there was like 10 VC firms. But in just mapping the landscape at that time, I imagine it was probably much easier to do. Like as in like you could just basically go meet with every single venture firm. 
Is that right? Or am I, or am I not thinking about that the right way? No, no, you're 100% right. I mean, even in 07, it, we were still facing the hangover of the uh, internet bubble period. Right. Uh, where a lot of capital was raised and then we had the crash. And uh, you could still feel the effects of that even going into 07, 08, and then the credit crisis happened. I would say the biggest difference between now and then uh, is there really wasn't as many, there weren't as many seed firms back in 07. Uh, from an institutional perspective, there were just uh, you know, 10 to 20 firms out there. Today, there's hundreds of firms. Uh, and so that, I would say, is the biggest difference. And if you can get also think about 08, 07, 08, uh, we never really experienced a bull market up until then. So there just weren't as many funds in the market. It wasn't the thing to do. Uh, so you're right. You could get to know all the firms out there. and They're primarily all Series A firms. The other big difference would be is there wasn't a lot of late stage capital out there too. So it was very much concentrated to the Series A firms, not many seed firms, not many late stage firms, and you could get to know them quite well, which is the stark difference to the past few years where there's just hundreds of firms on the seed side and there are a lot of late stage firms. So a lot more noise to cut through today to understand the landscape. So what did happen in, because I, I wasn't a VC at the time, so what what did actually happen in 2007, 2008, 2009? I mean, people know that obviously the broader macro picture, but what actually happened to venture? And, you know, we'll get to COVID-19 in a little bit, and maybe we'll talk about some of the parallels then. But I'm curious, like, when you look back now, like what actually happened to venture as an asset class in those few years? You know, it's, it's interesting going, there are a lot of parallels between 08, 09 and today. You know, going into 0809, we really didn't have a good sense of how our portfolio would fare because it was really the it was the first crisis, at least I experienced or we experienced post the internet bubble time period, and so we really didn't have a good sense of how our portfolio would fare. And what we ended up realizing was software in general was very durable. Mm. The beauty of software, which I assume you appreciate and a lot of people listening to this podcast appreciate it. It's a high variable cost business, or sorry, high gross mar margin business, uh, which implies it's very low fixed cost, very high variable cost. And so what companies were able to, and by the way, that variable cost is primarily personnel, you know, as you know, developers, yeah. marketing support. And so what happened in 07 or 08, 09 was our companies basically uh, cut their burn up 20, 30%, primarily personnel, and were able to extend cash beyond 12 months. Uh, and so while growth wasn't what they expected, they were able to survive and get to the other end. Uh, and so, yeah, there are a lot of parallels today, too, where I think the primary lever a lot of our software companies have is cut burn, extend cash, and survive. You know, growth won't be exactly what you expected. You won't hit the, hit the exact same milestones, but you're going to survive and cash is king. And so uh, what we saw in 08, 09 was uh, definitely a slowdown from capital be deployed also. A lot of endowments, foundations were at their targets for private equity, venture included. And when the public markets corrected, similar to what happened in March, they become over-allocated. And so the other thing we saw was new deployment of capital from LPs slowing down pretty significantly. And there was a flight to quality uh, where LPs would focus on the top death file, top, you know, top quartile managers, but everybody else struggled to raise capital. So there was less capital in the industry which was good for those that did have capital. And so, as I alluded to earlier, it ended up being two of the best years we ever had at our firm. And I think the industry generally um, experienced that too, where it ended up being a great time to put money to work. In, in kind of 08, 09, 010, yeah. that time period? Yeah. yeah. 
did you make any significant change? Like from a strategic perspective, did you guys make any significant changes through that period? The biggest change we made was start incorporating seed into our portfolio. During that time frame. Yeah. I mean, before then there weren't, seed really wasn't a thing before 809. And then you started seeing managers emerge that focused exclusively on seed. So starting in 0809, started mapping the, the seed landscape, starting to get to know it better, and then actively uh, increased our allocations to seed over the next few years. So firms like IA Ventures, Pivot North, Mucker Capital, you guys weren't around then, but uh, we started uh, making some core commitments to managers like that. And that became a big part of our venture allocation, the seed part of the market and continues to be. So that was the biggest change and very grateful for that. I mean, they ended up being some of the best returners in our portfolio. And so that was the biggest change that happened both in the in, that we saw in the industry in the venture capital space, but also in our portfolio was the incorporation of seed around the 0809 period. What got you over the hump for seed? I'd imagine in a period where there's less capital available and maybe folks are, are inclined to take less risk, you'd go, if anything, the other way. You'd go to growth rather than seed. So I'm curious how you internally kind of made that That's decision. interesting. I mean, one thing that I love about Accolade is we are willing to take risk. I mean, we are willing to invest in first-time funds. We're willing to invest in single GPs. We're willing to be contrarian. I mean, for us, uh, that's where we shine and where we can get some real outperformance. So from the get-go, we've always, we're willing to take such risk. And so in studying the seed market, uh, we've had a lot of comfort as you just realize this is what venture was in the in the 80s and early 90s. I mean, the funds were small. Hmm. Uh, they came in really at a company formation. And so it reminded us a lot of what seed was in the 80s and 90s and where you saw some real performance. The other thing that really stood out for us was just the math behind it. I mean, if you have a modest fund size with high ownership, you can get some outsized performance without billion-dollar exits. And if you get them, then you're, you have a home run fund. Um, so the math was really compelling, too, for us. I would say, thirdly, just the managers we backed had learned venture at other firms or just had experiences that gave them that institutional feel that we were looking for. So a firm, uh, you know, Gentlemen like Tim Connors worked at Sequoia and USVP. Eric Ranallo worked at Harrison Metal. Um, Roger Ehrenberg was a pretty prolific angel investor. And so they were very much had that institutional backing or background. They had that institutional experience. And so that gave us a lot of comfort too. So yeah, I would say those three things really are what gave us comfort to get over the hump and invest in seed early on. So those all seem like now in hindsight kind of obvious, right? Especially as you've now look at what's happened to seed why do you think it took so long for a lot of the fun, other fund of funds and other kind of institutional lps to come to that same conclusion well i mean it is still risky right i mean these are small funds they're not big partnerships one can argue there might be more volatility there and so for institutional lps that might be just too much risk to undertake um, and there's much more comfort around the series a managers that have been around 10 20 years so I, I just think it's more behavioral finance and human behavior that hmm. people need the, the data to be fully transparent uh, before they'll take that risk. I also think you just also needed to see more seed managers out there. I mean, there weren't that many when we were we started investing. So the seed market itself wasn't validated by its own peers. Right. Uh, today, you have hundreds of them. So it's just much more commonplace to see seed managers to invest. So it takes time. Um, but even today, I mean, there are a lot of LPs out there that won't invest in seed. The other issue is some of these, these seed funds are so small. 
Um, right. For certain right. IPs, the check size won't be meaningful to them. Right. So they need right. to write a big enough check, but C doesn't scale, as you know. So there was also institutional barriers from the broader market of the LPs to, to yeah. How would you describe Accolade broadly? Because, you know, you look at the website and, you know, you have very small funds and then you have some funds like, you know, uh, KKR or I, I don't know, some, uh, I guess, Axel KKR have a kind of joint fund. Like those two feel like just polar opposites. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like what that implies for the accolade strategy and how you define the strategy broadly. So the way we describe our strategy, so we're a fund of funds and we invest uh, across the private equity landscape from venture capital to growth equity. Uh, venture capital for us, primarily a seed series A manager, so very much early stage. On the growth equity side, uh, it's a mix of my, uh, managers that take a minority stake in bootstrap companies. Uh, and there's a mix of also uh, managers that take a control stake uh, in, in companies. On the venture side, our managers tend to be uh, small. Our venture portfolio uh, is split between Series A and Seed. On the Series A side, you'll see farms anywhere from 500 to a billion in size. Uh, on the Seed side, they're predominantly all under 100. Uh, so very much uh, small end there. On the growth equity side of our portfolio, there's also a mix. On the minority growth equity side, most of our managers are under 500 and a lot are under 300 in size, where you might see a billion dollar fund, and we've only had a couple in the life of the firm's history, is on the control side. Uh, so a firm like Excel KKR, which was a joint venture between Excel and KKR back in the 2000 period, uh, their most recent funds over a billion, and a firm like Tomo Bravo um, has migrated above a billion. So those are the only two firms where we really have exposure to the bigger funds. In general, we like small funds. We think that's where you get out performance. Those two firms have just defied gravity and been able to maintain a high level of performance, even at a, higher, a bigger fund size. But in general, we like smaller funds. Um, and I would say a majority of our portfolio. Other ways to describe our, our portfolio, uh, we are predominantly focused on technology firms. So 75% of the firms we invest in are tech, 25% in healthcare. All the firms we invest in are U.S. focused, so we're not investing in Europe or Asia in terms of firms domiciled there. Uh, and then we also like concentration. So all of our, we try to target around 15 commitments in every fund of funds of ours so that individual funds, individual companies can be meaningful to us. And then lastly, I would say 10% of what we do is we co-invest alongside of our managers directly in companies. You're one of the strongest proponents of small fund, high ownership, concentrated portfolios, uh, of maybe anyone I've met. One, I'd, I'd love to just hear your perspective on that and why you think that's so important. And, and two, has that always been a firm belief for you and the firm or is that, is that, has, has that been something that you've kind of learned and evolved with over time? And three, would you ever make any exceptions as you're evaluating managers? It's been part of our approach from day one, but I definitely believe we've built more and more conviction around it over time. You know, on the venture side of our portfolio, it's, it's rare to have a unicorn in your portfolio. I mean, they're called unicorns for a reason, albeit recently we've had a lot more unicorns than one might have ever imagined. Um, we just, we have a strong belief that there are a few firms that can find multiple unicorns every cycle, and those are the top five, top 10 firms. Uh, and those typically are the Series A firms that we're all very familiar with. Yeah, uh, they, they all have a track record 
uh, as again, of identifying multiple unicorns every cycle. Uh, and that's why they've been able to consistently deliver outsized returns. On the seed side of the, our portfolio, we have a belief that with the right fund size and the right ownership and the right concentration, you can get outsized returns without identifying multiple unicorns. Because we think it's so hard, uh, we don't want to, our model to be predicated on even seed managers finding that number of unicorns, that many number of unicorns. So, you know, we like funds that are under 100, under 50 million in size, getting 10 to 20% ownership. If you do the math, you know, a $500 million exit can return multiples of your fund. And if you get to a billion dollar exit, that's when you can have a five to 10x fund. Yeah. And so, yeah, we've, we've always had this perspective and that conviction is just built over time as we've seen now the success of that approach with the managers we've invested in, where we definitely have seen five to 10x and even greater funds uh, because they had the right pedigree, the right deal flow, they had the right fund size, they had high ownership, and when they had these meaningful exits, it's, it's been a home run. Would we be willing to make an exception? And to date, we haven't. To date, we haven't. Interesting. You know, you, you can find firms out there where they have one fund that's a home run because they you know, happen to find a unicorn or a decacorn, but can they consistently deliver that? Possibly not. Uh, what we're looking for is a consistent ability to de deliver not just three to five X returns, but five to 10 X at the fund level. And if they consistently do that, outside of being one of those top five Series A firms, we think you have to have the right fund size, right ownership, along with the right deal flow and pedigree. And so to date, we have not deviated from it. Um, and our, I think our conviction and belief in uh, this aspect of portfolio construction is stronger than ever before. Yeah. As you've now worked with some of these firms over, I guess some firms in your portfolio, right, for more than a decade, what have you seen in like the beginnings of that group or that set of managers that have led to consistent performance over time? Because you can't really know that, right? Like no. you can maybe look at their model and whatever their model says X, Y, and Z, but I'm curious, what are the attributes about that team that got you excited to invest early in, in many cases, like you said, fund ones? The commonalities we see among the GPs that we've invested is just strong conviction in their approach um, and not being persuaded by what their peers are doing, not being persuaded by the hype that's out there. And that's very hard. Um, I mean, there's a lot of pressures out there from peers, from social media, from the press. And I would say from day one, the managers we've backed and where we've seen the greatest success on the seed side is are those that have never swayed from their conviction. Mm. It's funny, they're not big tweeters or they, they're not blogging all the time. Uh, they're not at conferences or they're not sitting on many panels. Uh, they're very quiet, reserved, under the radar, and they're not swayed at all by what their peers are doing. I would say the other thing that we, we've seen is, you know, to have that conviction to get 10 to 20% ownership and not need your peers to participate in a round it's hard. And so that's the other thing that we've seen very consistently from our best managers from day one, where they're willing to have, have that conviction, put a lot of money to work in a company uh, and not need validation from their peers. It also reflects on who they are, that the entrepreneur will let them put that much money in yeah. uh, and not want other people in the round. So I think it, it's, it says something both ways. Those are the characteristics we've seen from day one, and they continue to prove out over and over again. 
I think what's also exciting is as our managers that have experienced the greatest success uh, on the seed side, and this also applies to the Series A side, is despite the success they've had, they've continued to be very disciplined. Hmm. Um, you don't see them raising significantly bigger funds, many times the same fund size. Uh, so their fund size have stayed exactly the same or marginally bigger. Um, and you don't see them deviating from what's worked for them. So, you know, you can imagine with all the success a GP could have that it would, they could, it would change their approach uh, and their strategy. But the level of discipline and consistency has been quite uh, amazing and reassuring to see from our best managers. And some of the specific ones that come to mind? I mean, you mentioned some earlier, but... In terms of... Managers. I mean, I'll promote the ones that we've backed that have been the best. Yeah. That we, the, the three that have been the most mature in our portfolio are IA Ventures, Pivot North, and Mucker Capital. And when I was describing what I was saying, I'm, I'm really looking at the three of them. Mm. Uh, they just embodied this approach beautifully. And then we've backed some newer managers that we think have the exact same characteristics, such as yourself, Thank you for such as Wonder Venture. Yeah. And so we feel like you, like you guys are that next generation where you have embodied the same traits and uh, hopefully can deliver the same type of returns. But yeah, I would say that the three that come to mind are the ones we've been with the longest are IA, Mucker, and Pivot. They've just been phenomenal. What, what were some of the mistakes? What shouldn't we fuck up? I would say mistakes is, uh, you can call it mistakes. I say the, the one thing, given our strong belief in this approach, I would say where we feel GPs sell themselves short is when they have a great company in their portfolio, but they didn't have that conviction from day one or the risk appetite to take more ownership. It's always a little painful to see when you, a manager has such, you know, a great outcome on an individual portfolio company, but it didn't move the needle. Hmm. Um, and it's a great logo. And so I think what you see with managers over time is they realize this and as they raise subsequent funds, they articulate that we need to get more ownership. We're doing a lot of work up front. We should get compensated for it. And so you see managers learn this over time where by the second, third fund, the mantra of ownership is really apparent. And maybe it took time to get there, right? I mean, to develop that confidence, to have that pattern recognition. Uh, but that is one of the bigger uh, learnings we see from GPs over time, which is they realize they do need bigger and bigger ownership stakes. Now, sometimes that partly can be, the issue there can be that they're also raising much bigger funds. So yeah. higher ownership, but if it's significantly bigger fund, uh, the impact might be the same. So yeah. he is having the same fund size or slightly bigger, but proportionally higher ownership. Yeah. I would say ownership is the biggest lesson I see GPs learn over the course of their life cycles, they just, they learn that the importance of ownership over time. Right, if you own twice as much, but your fund size has gone from 50 to 100, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter, it's the same math. It's, right. it's very simple math, right? I mean, if you have a $50 million fund size and you have 5% ownership, assuming no dilution, which we know we always have some dilution, oh, only a billion dollar exit returns are fine. And so if we're looking for three to five X, you either need three to $5 billion companies or one three billion, one $5 billion company. Um, that's just very hard to do on a on a consistent basis, fund by fund over fund. Yeah, so it's even better if you have a fifty million dollar fund and you have twenty percent ownership, just to throw the numbers out, right? So. Yeah. So uh, fast forward to today, you've had a great run. Yes. We've all had a good run over the last decade. <laughs> this is obviously unprecedented times, and and obviously the global health toll is shocking, and yeah. the impact on businesses is obviously going to be really meaningful. I'm curious today, 
how you and, and Accolade are approaching it. And I'm curious today, um, you don't have to name names, but you know, some aggregate level of maybe data or things that you're seeing from your managers in terms of how, how they're managing this too. Yeah, I mean, I think we all were expecting some type of correction at some point. We didn't expect it to coincide with the health pandemic. Um, so that's obviously very different. You know, our approach is very similar. Having gone through 0809 and seeing how our portfolio performed there, um, we're taking somewhat of a similar approach this time around, uh, which is we're cautiously optimistic that the portfolio will be durable during this period and that five, 10 years from now, we can look back and say, this might have been one of the best times to put money to work. And so in our conversations with our GPs, it's primarily just around, you know, what is the plan to survive this period? And it's very similar to what I mentioned in 0809, which our managers are advising their companies to cut burn and extend their cash runway 12 to 24 months. And I would say a super majority of our portfolio is in that position where they have 12 to 24 months, uh, sometimes even more of cash. And so cash is king, key is just survival, get to the other end of this. Uh, and so it's comforting that the same uh, experience or characteristics we saw in 0809 are, are showing up today, at least two months into this. Now, if this lasts a year or two, uh, everything can change, but at least two months into this, a lot of the same characteristics. Also having a lot of conversations with our managers about around reserves, uh, where they might be now allocating a bit more than before for reserves. That might mean fewer companies in the portfolio, might be mean coming back to market a little bit quicker with the next fund, but also a lot of conversations around reserves. How does going back to market quicker solve the reserves problem? Oh, it doesn't, it just means that- Oh, oh it just means they might have fewer companies in the portfolio because they have more reserve to those companies, which means they have to go fundraise sooner. Got it. We had one conversation with one of our life sciences managers and they're doing exactly that. The existing portfolio, they're um, allocating uh, more reserves to the existing portfolio, which means fewer companies. And instead of coming back, say in Q4, they'll come back in Q3 with the next. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, right now the approach is to just make sure the existing portfolio is in a good position. But again, two months into this feels like we're in that spot. And then continue to focus and deploy capital during this period. I mean, just like we did through 08, 09, and then into 2010, 2011. So, majority of the commitments we were over the next few years with, were with existing uh, GPs of ours, and we plan to support them. And like in the past, we'll be opportunistic to add to our portfolio. But we think in the long run, this is a great time to put money to work, and so we want to consistently deploy capital. And what's nice is our LP base has been supportive. Uh, I think they learned a lot from 08, 09. Uh, and they uh, generally view this to be a good time. So we're getting good support for them too. And so, yeah, we're consciously optimistic that this will be a great time to put money to work. Do you make any tactical changes or really like you just stick to the strategy and you continue to ideally invest a certain amount of dollars every year? And yeah, like if a bunch of managers are coming back earlier maybe than you thought, the funny thing is it was earlier. It used to be earlier because we're deploying so quickly. Yeah. Now it's earlier because we're reserving more. <laughs> that, that, a lot of, I mean, I wouldn't say that's uh, very common where people are coming back to market. Okay. It's a, a few data points there. I mean, even now, as you look at the market today, I mean, similar to 08, 09, during the fourth quarter of 08, first quarter of 09, uh, deal activity dropped out pretty significantly because people were focused on their existing portfolio. Uh, so they didn't have as much time to focus on new deals. 
uh, and where they did have time to focus on new deals, many times it was a huge bid ask spread where and our GPs were willing to invest that versus what entrepreneurs were willing to let people invest that. So uh, we did see, did see deal activity drop off in Q4 of 08 and Q1 of 09. We, we're seeing that too today where deal activity has slowed down. Uh, so that also counterbalances the coming back to market quicker where right. even though you're reserving more, there's less deal activity going on right now. Right. We're not, no major tactical change. I mean, okay. we're, we really believe in our strategy, our approach, our portfolio construction. Uh, we have tons of conviction on the managers we've backed over the more recent years. Um, and so no, no major tactical changes. We're just going to stick to our knitting our strategy and deploy that through this period. What is your view on how this kind of plays out and how long it lasts and how it affects venture, if at all? Because I will say, you know, two months in at pre-seed or seed, you don't see a noticeable impact just yet. Okay. On terms of, you know, valuations or deals getting done, like things are still happening. And so there's some part of me that's like, maybe, maybe seed and pre-seed won't change. Depends how long this lasts. Right. So I, I, I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious what your view is. Obviously like venture has had an incredible run. Yeah. You know, is there some possibility where if this only lasts, another quarter it doesn't have a meaningful change or or i i'm just curious yeah what what is your view and how how maybe bullish or bearish it is if, if this lasts one or two quarters i don't think venture and the broad economy misses much of a beat i think we go back to our normal habits and uh behaviors i tend to believe this will last in a good part of next year uh and there i think there will be some meaningful changes I'm already seeing some of it on the GPs, on the fundraising side uh, from underlying GPs where, you know, over the past few years, every week we would see half a dozen new, uh, new GPs coming out to market, you know, spinning off from bigger firms or right. what angel track records. That's dropped off a cliff over the past two months. Is that right? Yeah. Um, that has yeah. slowed down pretty significantly where we have not seen much in terms of uh, new GPs coming out, and those that are realize it's going to be a long process. Right. Uh, Whereas pre, because previously you're a GP at some big firm, and you're like, you know what? Maybe I'll just stick it out here for yeah. a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless you have a predefined LP base, it, it's going to be very hard as a new GP to raise capital. Like I mentioned, 0809, I do expect a flight to quality. Uh, so those top core top, even more so the top decile managers will be able to raise when they raise. Uh, but even, and I'm going to use the term emerging managers, firms that are maybe fund one, fund two, uh, but their prior fund really doesn't have a lot of visible traction. I think they're going to have a hard time raising capital too. Uh, they hmm. might take much longer than they expected. They might have to raise a little bit less. Um, yeah, you're going to see some winners and losers like we saw in 0809. But it, this is all predicated on how long this lasts. If it lasts, right. The good part of this year and into next year, I think you'll see some meaningful changes in terms of the number of G active GPs out there. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, less capital, fewer GPs out, it's better for those that do have capital. Yeah. Uh, which is what we saw in 08, 09. So, yeah, I, in the long run, we think this is a healthy correction uh, for those that are going to be active and be around. And so, um, advice to like newer people that are maybe on fund one or fund two, like, do you slow down? Do you try to, you know, slow the pace and 
make the capital last longer and, you know, don't expect to go raise a new fund for, you know, till 2021 or 2022, or do you just give it a shot anyway? Or like, what do you do? No, part of that is you have to know your LP base. So if you feel your LP base will, is supportive for your next fund uh, and allows you to continue the same pace or accelerate your pace, uh, then you should be in, you're in a good position. But if your LP base is unsure, I think it's in your it's to your advantage to maybe slow down a little bit instead of a two year investment period, make it three years. Uh, make sure time is on your side, right? Uh, it allows your prior portfolio to mature. It gives you more shots on goals with your existing fund. So yeah, you have to you have to understand your LP base and know where their heads at. But I would say in general, if I had to give advice. Make sure time is on your side here. Right. I guess the one. I guess the one major difference, you know, between today and 2008 was just like there's just there's just so many more firms now. Right. And so I guess the big question is what percentage of those firms don't make it out. Right. I, I'm just thinking about this and like like if it's a quarter or two, then probably doesn't have a big impact on the number of firms, which subsequently doesn't have probably a major impact on startups getting funded. Right. If it's a year or two and that number shrinks by, you know, 30% in terms of the number of firms, then then I guess that ultimately has a big impact on on how many startups are funded. But that probably takes a year or two for you to really see in the early stage financing markets, right? If we open up this summer or by the fall, if we're back to normal, I think this will be just a, a blip. Yeah. If this lasts until next year, I think you're going to see some permanent changes. I mean, in uncertain times like this, people are they're more risk averse, right? Uh, their risk appetite drops. So I think you'll see fewer new funds start. I think you'll see fewer people want to start new companies. Um, I was talking, to, and this is one data point. I was talking to one pretty sizable endowment uh, in the in the middle to end of March. And this is obviously a lot of this has been alleviated with the public markets coming back, uh, but they were above their allocation for private equity. Right. Uh, and they very directly said, look, if these top two, five firms come back, we'll back them. But then they rattled off five other firms that they have backed that you and I would know and said, if they came back to market, we would pass on. Wow. Now, again, that might have been alleviated given that the public markets have returned quite nicely. Right. Since. How much of those decisions, like when you have the capital stack trickle all the way down like how much of it is just literally directly correlated to the stock market so part of it is right asset allocation yeah and that we saw in 08 09 so that's very similar today because the stock market I, I i'm shocked by it but like stock market is seems just fine yeah. i don't think anybody understands don't fight the fed basically right which 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 but that would imply maybe that that their allocations to private equity will be will be the same yeah, I mean, if the if if the public markets can stay resilient at this level, which I personally don't think they can, unless the Fed really steps it up even further, if the stock market stays at this level, then people's uh, appetite for committing or allocating capital will remain the same. Right. One one last question on that: like, how much does fear of the stock market going down affect those decisions at like certain endow endowments and others? Like, you know, because there was a period of time a month or two ago, the stock market went down by like, it was the quickest it's ever fallen, right? Yeah. It went down by 30 or 40% or something in like a month. How much of that like in the back of their head, right? Is like, 
oh, that could happen again. So we got to make, and even if it doesn't happen, it could. So we're going to make other allocation decisions based on that versus like, oh, it's back. Things are fine. Well, I, I have to believe that people are, like you and I don't don't understand why the market's at the level at the level it is today, uh, and believe there's a good possibility that it'll right. go down, and therefore will be. We'll take that into account in terms right. of right. going forward. I think the other big issue uh, that we haven't talked about that is that endowments are facing today is uh, the uncertainty about students coming back to campus in the fall, yeah. and the associated revenue with that, and that we've never seen before. I mean, even in 0809, revenue was not an issue, so. Uh, for the first time ever, endowments, broadly speaking, might be asked, they might be tapped into to support the universities because there's going to be a revenue shortfall. Uh, and so that, to me, is the biggest thing I'm hearing now, which is it's hard to make illiquid investments without knowing how much the endowment's going to be tapped into to support the university for revenue. Hmm. How about other key LP types? So, like, the endowments clearly are going through a unique situation of which their endowments are going down and they might lose revenue via students not attending in the fall. How about for the like foundations for the, I don't know, sovereign wealth for like, like other major pools in terms of how you've seen this current environment impact their ongoing thinking in terms of allocating to venture? Yeah, I would say uh, even before those, I would say the other big one are fund of funds. There are a number of them out there from what I can tell right now, everybody is still active, committing capital, particularly to their existing managers. That was the case also in 0809, where fund of funds were consistent allocators over time. So that's nice to see that fund of funds are still out there. On the sovereign wealth side, that's a little bit it's a little bit too early to tell. It's it's a little bit unclear kind of how they're reacting to these markets right now, uh, in terms of committing to GPs. I would throw the all the other big categories family offices, but family offices there's a lot of volatility. It really depends on the on the family and whether they have a risk appetite or they don't have a risk appetite. In general, I would say it will be harder if you're not a top quartile manager or top decile manager to raise right. capital if this is a prolonged experience. Yeah, it's really good for those that raise capital uh, late last year, early this year, or if you're just a, a top uh, decile manager, you'll be able to raise whether it's this year or next year. So those that do have capital would be in a very good position. I'd just be curious on, on some final thoughts. You know, let's think about maybe what's your view on, on maybe much longer term horizon? Like, obviously, you guys have had a very positive view of the role in venture and its ability to, you know, generate outsized returns in past years. Like, I'm curious when you look out the next 5, 10, 15 years for Accolade, what that looks like, you know, assuming things do get back to normal someday. I'm curious how you just think about the future, you know, whether that's for Accolade as a firm, your managers, or for the technology ecosystem broadly. I mean, I would say the biggest thing, the fact that we're, we're software and healthcare investors, and we think um, both of those are experiencing long-term massive uh, bull, mark, uh, bull runs. Mark and Dries and Coin Software is eating the world that's more prevalent today than ever before. The types of problems being solved by software and technology are bigger than ever before. So we think we're in a massive bull run for software. Healthcare, given what we're going through right now, more important than uh, it's ever been. So we just, I think we feel fortunate that we're software and healthcare investors. And so we think this is a nice reset in terms of valuations, competition, uh, that we'll all benefit from over the next decade. So in the long run, 
we feel we're in a good position. I mean, we're just tech and tech and healthcare are the two sectors I I'd want to be in uh, going forward. In many respects, they're inherently better business models than anything out there. Uh, the level of innovation is uh, quite high, and so it's the tailwinds are pretty strong in software and healthcare. Atul, thank you so much. You've been a really fantastic partner to Notation for for years now. We're grateful for it, and thank you so much for finally agreeing to do an Origins episode with me. Next time we'll do one when、uh, we're not in a global pandemic. Yes, that would be great. Hopefully soon. Thank you. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com/notation. Terms and conditions apply. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech. Life sciences and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag #OpenLP.